Andrew Coyne is a Canadian journalist who writes a weekly column on politics for the Toronto Globe and Mail. And that's his famous dog. <laughs> What's the dog's name again? Toby. Okay. He has one of the country's most informative, entertaining Twitter feeds and is excoriated on it for what he writes by members of every corner side end of the political spectrum welcome to the bibliophile <laughs> we're here today to talk about your father james elliot coin and uh i'm going to work off uh, the winnipeg free press obituary that uh, appeared uh, upon his death I'm yeah. guessing that you and your siblings contributed to that? Uh, yes. Was it a group effort? I think, it, I think it was me and my sister Susie. Okay. Or my sister Susie and I. <laughs> okay. Your father was born in Winnipeg in 1910 and died 102 years later in 2012. He was a scholar, a lawyer, public servant, family man, and practicing eccentric. How so? Well, he, <laughs> he was uh, rather set in his way, shall we say. He had very pronounced likes and dislikes, uh, and they weren't always those of the uh, prevailing uh, opinion. Had rather peculiar eating habits, for example. He, he uh, would eat things like... Um, frozen Brussels sprouts and uh, cold coffee. At one occasion, he was caught making, he'd been making his coffee using fresca rather than, rather than water, which I cannot <laughs> think of anything more disgusting. Um, <laughs> that yeah. wasn't a regular habit then. That was just he was caught once doing that? <laughs> once that I could think of. <laughs> you know, he, he wore basically the same not the actual same items of clothing, the same style of clothing for about, you know, 80 years of his life. Right. And every 15 years or so, he, he would swing into fashion because fashion <laughs> would come back that way. He had no use for fashion, needless to say, of, of any kind. He, he came downstairs one time wearing a suit in a slightly lighter shade of gray Ooh. than the dark gray that he normally faded. And we could see that he was favorite. And we could see that he was very uneasy about it and we asked him about it and he said oh well, you know i don't want to look like a flashy joe <laughs> and if you knew my father <laughs> he was the furthest possible thing from a flashy joe but uh, he he had an, 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 an abhorrence of ostentation or or display or seeking attention or anything of that kind he was the second governor of the bank of canada from 1955 to 1961 succeeding Graham Towers. And during his tenure, this didn't take long to come up. During his tenure, he had a much publicized debate with the then Prime Minister John Diefenbaker. It's often referred to as the coin affair, which led to his resignation and eventually to greater central bank independence in Canada. With his passing, Canada loses, you write, the last of a generation of great public servants. And from my reading of it, he was a hero to public servants. 
certainly to his staff who threw a great big party for him when he resigned. Yes. I mean, he was a, a, a man of, of great principle, firm convictions. And, you know, the coin affair is much misunderstood and much mythologized. It sometimes makes more of him, uh, he would be the first to say, than he was. So he was not, for example, on a one-man crusade to, to change the entire policy of the government of Canada. Uh, the, you know, that he was sort of, sometimes he's presented as being, there was this big fight where he was, criticizing Diefenbaker's policies, et cetera. You know, he made some speeches about the general tenor of, of the direction of the Canadian economy. They weren't specifically critical of the government of the day. When the government decided that they were found them annoying, and he stopped. What really happened was there was, at least in the public mind, some degree of ambiguity around the role of the Bank of Canada, the governor of the Bank of Canada, mm-hmm. because it was still relatively new. It had only been started in the mid-1930s. And the government, the Diefenbaker government, sort of exploited that ambiguity to its purposes. Yeah. So when it suited them, they would say, when, when people were complaining to them that interest rates were too high, for example, they would say, well, don't blame us. That's the, that's the government of the Bank of Canada. And then as they got you know, close to, the, to an election and they needed a scapegoat, then they started ranting about, oh, this this governor, the Bank of Canada, it's, it's, it's run amok, it's out of control, it's, you know, who will assert democracy? And it, where it became ludicrous was, uh, where it came to a head was, uh, he was called into a meeting with the, the then finance minister, and he was told, oh, we, we've got a budget coming up. We can't tell you what's in it, uh, but we think there'll be some things in there that you don't like, so would you please resign? You know, which is absurd. It's it's preposterous. It's Kafkaesque. And on top of which, they started casting aspersions that the the board of the Bank of Canada had voted to increase the pension of the government. The board, which by the way yes. had been was made up entirely Sorry. of appointees yes. of the Diefenbaker government. Right. And this was somehow to be accounted against him that 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 somehow he should have stopped this or something. And I guess they they should have known that if there was one thing that would be absolutely certain to, you know, make him dig in his heels as if he started attacking his integrity. It was partly, so it was partly that, and it was partly to establish that you don't just go hiring and firing a Bank of Canada governor or threatening to, uh, as if it was just some, another patronage appointment. A whim, yes. And and so the government uh, passed a one-sentence bill to the House of Commons declaring that the the office shall be vacant and they didn't have any hearings or give him any chance to defend himself. And so the Senate which was then dominated still by the liberals and who had partisan reasons of their own to want to exploit this, but who also, I think, saw and knew a railroading when they, when they saw it. Uh, the committee, the, 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 I think, I guess it was the finance committee of, of, the, of the Senate held hearings at which he testified. And at the end of it, um, issued a, a, you know, a, a finding that, that exonerated him any wrongdoing. And at that point, he resigned because, right. you know, the position had become untenable. He had made his point. And by making it a big fight, had established, you, you don't just treat this position like another patron's position. And out of it came a clarification of the appropriate role and, and relationship between the Bank of Canada governor and the government, which had been broadly known within the bank itself, but wasn't, as I say, publicly understood. And that is that ultimately the bank of the, the government of the day is responsible for monetary policy as it is for everything. But that in the day-to-day business of running the bank, the bank is left to get on with it and not interfered with. 
and the government can issue a directive if it feels it must uh, in writing to the to the Bank of Canada to say that we want you to do X or Y, uh, and if the governor governor of the day can't abide by that, then his duty is to resign. But the long and the short of that is, it creates a Bank of Canada that, in operational terms, can't be fiddled with. The government can't say, "Look, we got an election coming; drop interest rates." Uh, but on the other hand, the governor of the day can't pretend that they're not ultimately accountable for for the conduct of Montreal. And of course, the modern day uh, embodiment of that are these agreements that the Bank of Canada and the government sign every five years, I guess it is, in which they agree on a broad policy to be pursued so that neither of them can evade their responsibility for it. And as you know, that that agreement is just coming up for renewal this fall. So it's a very interesting time to be discussing all this. The point is, his stand, I think, was respected by members of the civil service. I think that's why you make the, the point that uh, that he is a, a a great representative of what the public servant should be. Yes, and and you know as I say, he came to Ottawa in the uh, mid nineteen thirties when a lot of very bright and talented people did because you know the federal government then was sort of like I don't know TV in the fifties or the internet in the nineties. It was it was the big new thing. It was. Uh, it was the place where talented people went who wanted yeah. to make their careers in, in public service. The Bank of Canada, as I say, had just started. And he had been employed uh, as, as the junior counsel to a committee. It was the Senate committee or parliamentary committee that was traveling around the country to investigate grain prices. Let's get back to his parents. Can we do that? And then, sure. uh, so he, he's the son of Edna Margaret Nee Elliott and James Bowes Coyne a judge at the Manitoba Court of Appeal who was a co-prosecutor of the men accused of seditious conspiracy in the Winnipeg strike of 1919. So how did that turn out? (laughs) Uh, The the strike ultimately did not succeed. The strike had uh, quite frankly revolutionary aims uh, to to, bring down the government of the day. So he was Uh, successful in his prosecution? I... Yeah, you know, I don't know the details of that, of, of, of exactly what happened with the prosecution. I know that the strike itself, as I say, did not succeed, no. as to say, partly because they, they lost public opinion. I think there were people who were more sympathetic in the beginning, but some of the more zealous members of the, of the strike committee decided that they would not, uh, to make it the strike total, they would not allow deliveries of milk and eggs to, to, uh, to mothers of, with children. Right. Uh, and that lost them a great deal of public, right, uh, right. public support. So um, his uh, father was a member of, of Winnipeg's famous Sandrin group? The Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, yes. Can you tell me about that? I don't know a great deal about it. It was sort of a, um, a bunch of sort of brainy types or people who thought they were brainy. Uh, I think they had some affiliation with uh, John Defoe, the great uh, yes, the editor. press editor. Yeah. I'm guessing they were probably large L liberal types, but I'm not sure of that. Well, one but thing one thing that they met to talk about was, well, to expound on the virtues of Canadian autonomy. Yes. From the United that, States. That's right. And that was something that informed some of Dad's thinking. That's why I really got interested in him. <laughs> Is that right? 
Well, certainly, and I think somebody referred to him, maybe it was Peter C. Newman, referred to him as a tight money nationalist. Yes. Uh, and that was to the extent that he was making speeches before the coin of or, you know, the beginning of it. He, he was concerned that the country as a whole was, quote unquote, living beyond its means, that we were borrowing enormous amounts uh, overseas, particularly from the Americans. And as such, we were at risk of losing some of our independence. This, was this the focus of the speeches that he... Yeah, it, was, it was part of it, yes. The, the living beyond our means thing was definitely a big part of it, as I recall. And uh, at the, I remember talking to him about it, and he says, you have to re- remember, at that time, a much, much larger percentage of the Canadian economy was foreign-owned than today. So, you know, people of my generation are much less inclined to be economic nationalists or be, or to be terribly concerned about foreign ownership. But I, I get it that at that time and at that stage of our development, people might look, might've looked at that and said, we're really compromising our independence here. We, we are not going to be able to, to, uh, you know, carve out an independent foreign policy or what have you. And you'll recall, of course, we had a big, huge knockout drag out debate of that in 1988 with the free trade debate. And by that time, enough of the public and, and, and circumstances had changed enough that people on balance said, no, we, we don't think that's as much of a concern. But if in the, in the late 50s, you know, I could well imagine that would be much more of a, of a legitimate and valid concern. Well, do you think that he overstepped his role as governor of the Bank of Canada to make these kind of speeches across the country that expressed fear that the Americans own too much of the economy? I don't know. That's a tough question. Generally speaking, one prefers one's central banks to bankers to be circumspect, but at the same time, they are in a in a they have a bully pulpit. They have a lot of people doing a lot of research for them. They have a podium, and and I guess he felt a, a, you know it, it was such a pressing concern that he needed to 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 make some statement about it. It, it, it does intersect and interact with monetary policy. It, it would constrain. In he's, important ways, the conduct of an independent monetary policy. So I could understand why he would he would have some concerns about that. But obviously, it, it's uh, it, it makes you a bit of a target. <laughs> the thing is, he was also a target because uh, he was in many ways ahead of his time in terms of his conduct of monetary policy. So things that today seem commonplace and uncontroversial, or largely uncontroversial, for example, that the the Bank of Canada, the organization with responsibility for issuing the currency, should attempt to prevent that currency from debasing through inflation. Yeah. So to try to keep inflation low and stable. That's orthodoxy around the world now. In the 50s, it was a bit more controversial. In fact, 29, quote, professional economists right. signed a, le- a public letter criticizing him for what's now orthodoxy. That's right. And, and so that's a second... A pillar on which you see people to this day saying coin was right. So the first is on the coin affair, but the second is on that monetary policy uh, has to has to make maintain the purchasing power of the currency and, and not allow it to be debased. You know, more broadly, there, there's there's certain sort of important policy things that he put in place that have become part of the the, the architecture of, of Canadian monetary policy. It's not so. It's not just the inflation. Focus, but it's also um, floating exchange rates. Uh, um, again, orthodoxy today, kind of a radical idea back then. Absolutely vital to our prosperity. It's one of yeah. the. It doesn't get enough attention. If we didn't have a floating exchange rate, if we were trying yeah. to, to maintain a, a peg against the Canadian, the American dollar, 
we basically would have to run the same monetary policy that they did, right? If, 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 yeah. Because otherwise we'd be constantly having to, to worry about, you know, running out of foreign exchange reserves, et cetera. And, and so if, you know, if, if, the, if the dollar was in danger of, of devaluing, if we were having to, de- to, to, to defend it against a run on the, on the dollar, then we'd have it be jacking up interest rates much higher than we'd ever want to. So it, it just what it did. We've seen examples in our time where countries that had to defend a fixed exchange rate had terrible domestic consequences as a result. So the fact that we take the burden of adjustment in our economy through movements in the exchange rate, and those can be sometimes uh, quite stressful, but far less so than, than the alternative. So that's another important thing. And the final thing is, I thought it was pegged to the U.S. dollar until 1970, wasn't it? Am I wrong? No, it went off in 1960. Let me think. It was derided as the Diefenbach. Right, <laughs> I right. The, I can't remember the exact thing, but he was, he was, a, the, the, it was one of the things that Mark Carney was kind enough uh, on after Dad's, uh, dad's death to, to, to note that uh, okay. he was one of the fathers of the sort of floating exchange rate idea in Canada. Okay. Um, things of allowing um, uh, interest rates to be set at auction, you know, the, 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 they have these weekly auctions of treasury bills rather than just setting them by fiat. Yes. Uh, and that, again, is sort of everyone takes it for granted now, but was actually kind of a, a new idea way back when. Well, just a, a, a kind of an example uh, or proof that he was really smart is the length of time it took for the committee that was deciding who was going to get Rhodes scholarships. I read that it was the shortest time on record because oh, he was so far ahead of all the others. He was a brilliant scholar. He had a, he had a brain that we all basically stood in awe of. There's one story we pass around that, you know, when he was in his nineties, he was having a discussion with my niece who was then, in law school, and he was tossing off, you know, cases from law books that he hadn't read in seventy-five years or whatever. Yes. They had just a prodigious memory, and and was you know extremely disciplined and, and, and focused in his studies, and uh, yeah, did very well academically, and, and was enough of an all-rounder. Uh, he was a good uh, hockey player. He, he was, was the the captain of the Oxford hockey team. Yeah, toured around and, and won the European <laughs> Collegiate Championship. Right, and he met so, Albert Einstein. What's that all about? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I should have gone and, and back and looked at my notes on this. Yeah, there is some story about how when he was at Oxford, I guess Einstein was came to speak or something. Okay, uh, and and um, <laughs> yeah, he met him and uh, and t- talked with. Him. Did he tell him where he he, he was going wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Because Although, he did have the answer to the the source of the universe, didn't he? You were saying yeah, he did have a he did have a great interest in it was one of the areas. With, I don't know whether it was because he met Einstein or, or not. But <laughs> he was fascinated with the cosmos. And yes. He read a lot of books about um, the origins of the universe and and sort of uh, astrophysics. It was one of his great reading passions. One, another one was medicine. He was he was fascinated with the human mm-hmm. body and, and that kind of thing. The brain, um, yeah. uh, Canadian history, uh, and also uh, dreadful uh, uh, murder mysteries and and uh, and crossword puzzles. Very good. Well, this is this really perked up my 
attention. He, he apparently collected antiquarian books. Can you can you talk to that at all? Yes, he was great a great and passionate collector of antique books of um, maps, especially maps uh, you know old maps of of Canada. So he was a great Canadian patriot, great he had a great love of Canadian history and and of the story of of Canada. Collected maps of Canada, collected uh, uh, you know books that were you know in some cases hundreds of years old. Uh, a great collector of Canadian uh, painting. He had a particular fondness for a painter who's not terribly well known, but who I, I, I quite like, named R. W. Burton. He was a um, protege of uh, A. Y. Jackson. But, so how did that uh, manifest he, he itself? Like how, as a kid, how did you see that? Like did he did you he drag you to bookstores or what? He did actually. I can remember going through antique map stores. We, we lived for a year in England when I was little, and, and so that was a great trove for him. Yeah. Um, you know, walking around in London and going into old bookstores and old map stores, and they were all around the house, you know, <laughs> right. uh, either on the walls or stacked up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so they were always a, a, a presence. And and yeah, and the, and the paintings, a lot of them were on the walls, and, and several of he, he had a lot of the R.W. Burtons. Yes. So several of them found themselves in, in, into the collections of my siblings and I. Well, we we actually, we're going to have to check him out, aren't we? I'm going to have to put a, a few posts up on uh, on they're, Burton. They're 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 quite well done. So the best right. of them, I think, are really do have a evoke that uh, a feeling like you're in the woods somewhere. The, the, but as I say, he loved Canadian scenes, Canadian landscapes, okay, and, and anything anything to do with with the history of Canada. He was always very interested in. So after he met Einstein, he went back to Winnipeg to practice uh, to practice law with his father. Uh, and then, as you say, he joined the, the Bank of Canada in 1938 and um, sort of worked his way up the up the ladder. He was deputy governor of the bank in 1950 and became governor in 1955. He was hired, and yet he didn't have any formal training in economics. So how did that work? Well, he'd been working at the bank since the mid-30s, as you say, mid to late 30s. Uh, he was a voracious reader, and he educated himself um, and, and had, had a lot of hands-on training. So he was at the bank in the bank research department early on. Uh, at, at some point, he, he, he went to work... Um, as, as a, I think he was a finance attaché. He went down to Washington. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think he was, he the, was first, during, the first. He was there during World War II, wound up working on, I think he helped to draft the, uh, the Hyde Park Agreement, which was the sort of defense-sharing agreement with the United States, um, wound up coming back to Canada, and, and was he the chair of the Wartime Prices Board, or certainly on the Wartime Prices Board, which was pretty intimately involved in planning the economy, et cetera, the, the wartime economy, he would have been all of about 29 years old at the time. Wow. Um, so obviously and, uh, they saw that this was a talented, very talented, yeah. intelligent young man. Yeah, uh, and, and very capable and a combination, I guess, of deep reading on the economy and of um, practical policy um, experience of actually yeah. enacting these things. I mean, a wartime economy is a strange beast. It's, it's very unlike, um, very unlike a, a peacetime economy, but at the same time, you would, you would really have a chance to kind of study the, study the innards of it, if you will. You know, you, it, it's almost like a laboratory experiment. You can do things in a wartime economy you couldn't do 
in peacetime. So I imagine he learned uh, a fair bit about it from from that as well. So then you say that uh, he he spent the first two decades of of his working life maintaining a quote disciplined routine of self reliance cooking, cleaning, and taking long walks every day. <laughs> yeah, he was, you know, he was a bachelor. Right, um, right. Well, that's the thing. He was a bachelor for quite a long time, wasn't he? That's right. And as I say, I had a, um, a you know, a, a, a disciplined lifestyle that went with that, of, um, with his hobbies and his studies and his reading. Yeah. And, and he um, loved it, I guess. He loved being he, a bachelor. He, he, he did and he didn't. I mean, I think he, he there were aspects of that he certainly enjoyed. But I think as time went on, and he, I remember him saying this to me, that he, he just he knew that this, was, that this this wasn't the life that he wanted, that he no. wanted to get married. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that worked out for him. Uh, yeah, I wonder, did he, he just didn't meet the right person? Is that it? Well, who knows? You know, who knows what the, uh, you know, that's, yeah. that's not for me to say. Uh, but he certainly met the right person in the end. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and that was uh, Maribeth Stoby Riley, a young widow with three unusually lively small children. <laughs> he certainly, uh, you know, he, he walked into, a, a, you know, the, the, he got the complete package. He didn't just get married. He, he yeah. suddenly was a father of three and then had two more. The reason we put all that in it was he, he just seemed to take to it so naturally. It wasn't around at that time, but... But from what everyone, one, everything one hears is he just had a natural affinity for it, natural ability for it. Um, we always said kids and dogs just seemed to glom onto him. He, he, had, he had something about him that made them feel at ease. And uh, so it, was a, it, it just really worked out for everybody. Right. And then at, at this point in the obituary, you write, when circumstances brought him home to his beloved Winnipeg, so you really do sort of skip over the coin affair in the in the obituary. I just wonder why you did that. Well, that's well, that's not why you wound up in Winnipeg. So, so the coin affair was in 1961. Yeah. And then he worked worked in Toronto for a couple of different financial institutions in Toronto. And what took him back to Winnipeg was he uh, was part of a team that attempted to found the the Bank of Western Canada. But unfortunately, he was paired up with in that endeavor with uh, Sinclair Stevens. Oh, so at that time was sort of the whiz kid of Canadian finance. He was running the, I think it was the York Trust, and they were doing all, all sorts of daring things like, you know, staying open after four and things that were unheard of. Uh, <laughs> right, serving the customer, uh, putting the customer first. Like, exactly, and it probably <laughs> seemed like a good fit in that way, bringing my dad's experience and Sink's kind of entrepreneurship. But the terms of the charter of, of the Bank of Western Canada was that it was supposed to be by foreign about Western Canadians. It was supposed to, you know, get, it was a part of getting Western Canada out from under the boot heel of the Eastern banking establishment. So it wasn't supposed to be Eastern funded. It was supposed to be Western funded. And Sink was one of the investors in the bank, but got into some trouble with some of his other investments, as I understand it, right. and started borrowing to meet his Bank of Canada obligations, started borrowing from not only Eastern Ontario interests, but also from, um, from the States. Dad got wind of this and basically blew the whistle on it, and the whole thing basically came down like a house of cards. So it, it's it's an unfortunate thing that uh, you know once again he did the principal thing, but but um, but it was uh, it must have been a, a terrible blow for him. Yes. 
uh, we already talked about the fact that he read a lot. So as a result, he, uh, as you put it, was an inexhaustible source of arcane knowledge with endless patience for the questions of small children. He was the kind of father who actually knew why the sky was blue. This is beautifully written, I must say, really. It's lovely. It really is lovely. Uh, why the sky was blue and how old was the universe and the names of all the trees. Uh, his greatest gift to us was the summers we spent at Magical Lake of the Woods, where our family still gathers to this day. And it seems to me that you really did win the father lottery. Oh, absolutely. I mean, You're lucky. so some of the circumstances of the accounted for it are, are unfortunate, but the payoff was he was home a lot. And um, we got to spend a lot of time with him as kids. And he just doted on us in a firm and fatherly way. And yeah, he, I think part of the reason kids liked him is he would talk to them, you know, in complete sentences and, and, and converse with them in, in, as if they take it in. He didn't, didn't talk down to them. And it was fascinating. And even if you didn't understand what he was saying, it was just fascinating to listen to it all, you know. And you felt like you were being let in on sort of grown up subjects and that kind of thing. And yeah, I have very fond memories of. You know, after dinner, we would, we would if, if some obscure word had come up at dinner, we would retire into the library and look it up in the, <laughs> the yes. Austria Ecological Dictionary. Yes, right. Trace it back to its Greek roots. <laughs> uh, uh, or, 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 yeah, or he would explain to you about something he'd been reading about the universe and that kind of thing. So it was, we were so very, very lucky. Thank you for saying that. We absolutely did win the lottery. We, 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 he was a wonderful role model of just quiet integrity. Uh, I, I just could never imagine him doing the wrong thing, you know? That's a wonderful uh, a gift to a child, have that example. Well, and as you said, too, he was very consistent. Well, maybe that means he didn't change, but I think that's one one thing you, you know, you allude to, is that uh, <laughs> he wore yes. the same clothes, you know? He, there were no surprises with him. Uh, exactly right. He, yeah. he was not what he was not what one would call mercurial. <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You could trust him. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Well. Okay. You say this, but in in effect, you met him after the coin affair, and uh, you you're painting him as would you call him a humble, modest man? Yes, I absolutely would. Okay. Uh, and and not. Having said that, you know, he was firm in his convictions and all these things, he was also capable of compromising. I, I always remember that, that he did not, um, it wasn't sort of my way or the highway. You know, he, he, he also understood that there's times in life when you have to compromise. The wisdom is in knowing which is which, right? Where's the, where's the time when you actually have to take a draw a line in the sand and where's the time when you negotiate and you compromise? But I, I think it's important to understand that he wasn't just a, I'm right and everyone else is wrong all the time. Kind of thing. He was he was certainly capable of understanding when he was wrong and, he, and, and, and of apologizing if he'd made a mistake or what have you. you know? Okay, so here's Peter Newman. In The Renegade in Power, very popular book at the time. I think it came out in 63. Yeah. He says that during his tenure as governor of the Bank of Canada... He was more concerned with ideas than with people. And, quote, he was rude and intolerant of others. His main defect was his exaggerated sense of pride. He was afflicted with what the Greeks called hubris. Mm -hmm. 
So is there some kind of personal slight that uh, Newman? <laughs> you never know because this is oftentimes comes up in journalism is, you know, who did you talk to last? Yeah. Was it somebody who didn't get his way and, and he's now ticked because Coyne didn't take his proposal or, or what have you? That's not to say that, that, you know, I am sure there would be on occasions when dad would not have been as diplomatic as he might have preferred. Uh, well, maybe he didn't suffer fools. Maybe no, that's, that's right. it. And he was a younger man then, and, you know, it's a, it's a, a pressure-packed job, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm not here to say that he, he would never have, have um, you know, never have, have uttered a harsh word or, or been, as, been, been, a, been a little less than, as I say, diplomatic. But, as I say, you'd have to know the context of, uh, and, and, the, and the, the people involved as to exactly what would have gone into that. That's, that's the occupational hazard of that kind of insider journalism is – it really depends who they talk to and what their agendas were. Newman's. I thought you were going to quote me the, the line I love from Newman was about Coyne lecturing his subordinates on the virtues of cardboard luggage. Yes. I'm sure yes. it's true. <laughs> yes. That's right. I don't think he meant luggage, but, but he used, he had a bunch of. Oh, it's luggage. He did say luggage. For, well, well, at least that's the quote. I never personally witnessed that, but I know he had a lot of cardboard uh, you know, banker's boxes. You like that in a governor of the Bank of Canada, yeah, he, don't he, you? Yeah, he was, he was definitely not profligate. He knew, he knew the value of a dollar in his, his own personal place, once he did in, in uh, public matters. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I do want to return briefly to the coin affair, if, if you're okay with that. Sure. It's really this a scrap with Donald Fleming, the finance minister, Diefenbaker's finance uh, minister. And as, as you mentioned, as governor, coin heavily, this is Wikipedia, and I, and I think they exaggerate this. They the, say, the Wikipedia entry is, uh, if I may say, is, as the kids say, problematic. Yes, well, that's what I'm going to point to. He says, as governor, Coyne heavily criticized the government's fiscal policies in which the Diefenbaker government spent and borrowed heavily in an effort to stimulate growth amid a flagging economy. Government officials urged Coyne to lower interest rates and uh, create economic activity. But Newman suggests that in fact, these government officials agreed with Coyne, arguing that yep. loose, loose monetary policies were creating a debt crisis and that Canada was relying too much on... Now, they do they say capital exports. I'm not quite sure if that, they know what they're talking about there. And loans from the United States and that tightening was needed. So, That's Newman... The thing is that, that behind the scenes, uh, there wasn't a great deal of policy disagreement. Uh, yeah, and I, I suspect Fleming didn't. Did, I don't think it was a bad guy. I don't think he felt terribly comfortable in it, but he went along with it because you know it was the requirement of the job. But but if, but certainly Fleming was the one who called him into his office and asked him, "Would you please resign because of this budget that we can't tell you about?" It's just it, I, I, I've never heard of anything similar in any you know serious G seven country. You know. <laughs> Well, one of the suggestions is that it was Diefenbaker was ticked off that he didn't get much of a pension and, and Coyne was giving himself one of $21,000, uh, bumping it up from eleven eleven nine or whatever it was. And, and Diefenbaker didn't, really didn't like that. I think it was more, as Diefenbaker 
uh, was rash enough to say to some colleagues at the time that in a conversation that was then relayed, uh, he was going to use the pension as a stick to beat coin with. It was a pretext. Yes. He grasped onto this straw, as I say, that the board of the Bank of Canada that he'd appointed made provision to increase the pension of the governor, grabbed onto this as a way of, of you know, boxing that in. It was, it, was a, it was just crude political thuggery and nothing much, nothing more than that. Would you say that your father thought maybe that his life as a public servant was coming to an, uh, even though the liberals probably would have, well, anyway, that he said, okay, I've got to beef up my pension because I'm probably no, not going to get... He I'm generally not, had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with it. He had, noth- he had no... He had nothing to do with it. Well, because it's a very, pension. very handsome increase. I think the and board. It, it came I about a the, year, a year like it was about a year in the making, right? Yeah, I think the board's policy was: we want to uh, see to it that that the, the, the future Bank of Canada governors cannot be easily threatened, and the right. intention was to give them some security of tenure. Yes. Uh, so that even if they, were, but I don't. Uh, from my everything I've understood, I don't think that had anything to do with it. Okay. It's a vote, the vote of the board. Okay. I'm a collector. I, I, I love uh, ephemera from this period. And uh, I'm, I'm very big on Americans coming into the country pretending to be Canadian. And so I love to find examples of that. Just sort of eases the, the nasty pill of uh, the, all of the profits that they're sucking out of our country. Um, but uh, I did get a. I did actually find the annual report for 1957 of the Bank of Canada. In the back of it, there's a clipping, and it's these professors that are suggesting. They're from Carleton, suggesting that Coin now deceived the public in this annual report. And in fact, it's written in the first person. He. It's written by him, by your father. And they're suggesting that he is making it look like easy money. Money is more available than it actually is. And that that he was deceptive in that. Did you get, do you have an understanding of what they were at? They were questioning his, I don't know what they were questioning. Well, that, that specific thing I can't speak to is preposterous from everything I know about him. But what's certainly true is that, you know, this was the high watermark of enthusiasm in the economics profession for um, a very hands-on, very simplistic kind of Keynesianism. Just you could just kind of fine-tune the economy by raising or lowering the deficit. Um, you didn't have to worry about inflation so much that there was a, there was an easily exploitable trade-off between inflation and unemployment. The, the Phillips curve with you know uh, not just an observed set of relationships, but something you could you could move the economy up and down. The Phillips curve, and so you could just, if you wanted to lower unemployment, you just had to tolerate a little higher inflation, and, it, and that little higher inflation would never become much higher inflation. And all of this, of course, was utterly exploded by the experience of the seventies and eighties and nineties. But it, at that time, in the fifties and sixties, it was still in kind of a, it was still possible to claim that. So the, the professors of the time, or some of them, who were caught up in this, in what was then that orthodoxy weren't terribly keen on seeing a, a, a central bank governor who didn't appear to share their share their orthodoxy. 
And as you mentioned, you know, he wasn't even a professor of economics. How outrageous was that? So he did have his tangles with some of the economists of the day. But I would venture to say um, that economists in latter decades would look rather more favorably on him and less favorably on them. Okay, and then he goes out on this speech tour. And here's a quote from one of his speeches, your father. If we do not effectively change the trends of the past, we shall drift into an irreversible form of integration with a very much larger and more powerful neighbor. I do not believe this is what Canadians want, for it means surrendering the very idea of Canadianism. And I would suggest that that was the last stand. He, he and Walter Gordon, there was an opportunity to buy back our country. That was it. It's been <laughs> it's been downhill ever since. Really, well, I know you, I, I, and I want you to address that. You say you're sure. saying it's not a problem now. I think it's as big a problem as it's ever been. Well, I, we may have to respectfully disagree on that. But but when you look at measures, for example, of you know share of ownership, uh, foreign ownership as a percentage of this or that industry. It's much lower now than it was in those days. I don't know where you're getting uh, your figures from, though. Well, we, 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 we'll have to go back and look at them then, but I can recall looking into this in the, in the past uh, because it came up, as you know, we, we had a big uh, national discussion about this during the free trade. And we haven't had any discussion of it since. Well, it, fair enough. And uh, I'm not sure I can, um, I don't lose too much sleep about that because I'm not as concerned about uh, frankly, the concern these days is that we're, we don't, we're not getting enough foreign investment. Um, we have a huge challenge in front of us as a country uh, in the form of, of the aging of the population. And um, it represents enormous costs because mostly for health care. And it also represents a, a reduction in our productive capacity because we're going to have a smaller share of the workforce, of the population that's at work in, in the workforce. And the only way we're going to be able to square that circle is to have much higher productivity growth than we've experienced in recent decades. And the only way we're going to get that much higher productivity growth is to have much higher rates of investment. And we're not going to be able to finance those very high rates of investment just from our meager foreign savings. So we're going to have to be open to a lot of foreign investment if we're going to get that, get that kind of investment rate. So, so that, you know, these days that strikes me as much more of the challenge. But as I say, I understand why in the 50s or 60s, um, when when this debate was much hotter, I understand why it was much hotter, because certainly every, every piece of data I've looked at says that the level of foreign investment was much higher than as a percentage of the economy, as a percentage of, 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 of industries. Um, but the, and the point that he was making in particular was, and it's sort of a, it's sort of a similar point in a way to the, what Tommy Douglas used to say, is if you get it yourself into too deep debt, then you lose your your autonomy. You are in hock to the banks. You you are you are you have to do what the banks want you to do. You have to pay. Remember what happened to us in the nineties when we were paying thirty seven cents of every do tax dollar right. just to pay interest on the debt. Yeah, that's servitude, right? That's then you really are in, in, in you really are losing your autonomy. You really are losing your independence. So the point he was trying to make was, and, and he was definitely much more of an economic nationalist than I am, but we're from different generations. Uh, but certainly he was an economic nationalist, but, but it was particularly he was trying to uh, make the point to people that, that if you're not prepared to finance 
you know, to, to, to pay your own bills, to pay your own way, then you lose a certain degree of, of, um, of independence. Uh, um, um, and, and, you know, he, he, he thought it was important enough to raise the alarm about it. I think he, yeah, I think he was much, much more of an economic nationalist than you are. Yes, well, I, I freely, freely admit it. <laughs> okay, so I found, uh, I found this lovely little, little thing. <laughs> uh, it's called, uh, it's a little brochure called How They Sold Our Canada to the United States. And it's, it's Andrew Lamori, it's, it's a, uh, a pseudonym. But apparently he's quite connected. He's qu he, with Ottawa, so I'm not sure who he is. But it would be a great project to try and find out who this was. I think, and he does address the coin affair, and uh, he lets coin speak for himself. I assure you that I'm not going to bore you with another of those highly technical explanations of the coin affair. The main issue at stake, which explains vividly why coin was fired you may determine from james coin himself the fundamental question which we must decide one way or the other this is your father uh, he said at bishop's college conference in 1961 is whether we are prepared as a nation to finance and control our own development to such a degree uh, that the canadian interest in canadian industry shall in future increase instead of continuing to decrease. And then he says, there's another, this is in Calgary, he says, <laughs> the year before, this is your father again, on, on this speaking tour that is his own initiative, mm. he says, we are now at perhaps the most critical crossroad of all. Doctrines of an earlier day are pushing us down the road that leads to loss of any effective power to be masters in our own household and ultimately absorption in and by another. And I'll just I'll bore you with one more quote. The economic integration of Canada by the U.S. has already begun. The question we must decide is, do we want an independent Canada? And this is our friend who wrote the book, his commentary on that. He says, the smokescreen that billowed around him in the final stages of his battle, all the fiscal gibberish about Bank of Canada monetary policy and the charge that coin had violated pension regulations. This confusion was deliberately encouraged in the press in a systematic and successful effort to prevent the public from understanding why Coyne was being discharged. He was discharged because he was a loyal and patriotic employee of the Canadian people who had access to the disgraceful inside facts of the sellout to the United States of America and because he chose to take his stand against the treasonable policy that is destroying our country's independence. That's a beautiful little paragraph there, if you ask me. Well, it, that's, that's some fine writing, yeah. I, I, I think I find it a little bit conspiratorial and a little bit grandiloquent, and I don't think Dad would uh, endorse uh, 
really what are you saying? I think that's, as I told you, I think people sometimes mythologize the coin affair into something more than it was. Uh, it was rather, um, you know, grubbier than that. He's, he's the one that, yes, it was grubby, but he's the one that went out and made these uh, speeches about Canada yeah. selling out to the United States. Well, and, and, and to be frank with you, you know, it's hard for me uh, to identify with those speeches because, but again, it was a long time ago when the situation would have looked very different. So I don't think most people today uh, think that we've sold out or that we don't have our independence or that we're not a, not a sovereign country. We are. We do. We take decisions on our own. We make, uh, you know, decisions every day that are that are different from the, Amer the Americans. And I say one of the things that certainly uh, safeguards our economic independence is the floating exchange rate. But we're also sharing a continent with them. Uh, so to some degree of interdependence and some degree of uh, taking cognizance of the fact that we that we have to deal with this colossus in the south is just a fact of geography. There's no getting around it. Unless we want to be autarkic. You know, if, if you're going to have trade and investment flows between countries with all the benefits that flow from those trade and investment flows, not just with the Americans, but with the world, then there's some degree of trade-off involved in that. There's no doubt about it. But that's a trade-off that you know, the whole world is is, is yes. grappling with globalization, and there's no doubt that there. You, you know, we've seen it, um, w when it comes to to sort of integration through the World Trade Organization, and um, this kind of, of sort of statutory integration rather than just openness to trade and flows, but where you're you're subject to trade rules, beneficial as the, as I think they generally are. I understand people who say, "Hey, wait a minute, I didn't vote for this." Why is this gnome in Brussels or, or what have you? Why are they able to make decisions? This, this comes up in the European debate. Uh, I understand that, that if the, 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 the more ambitious you get with trade agreements where you go beyond just tariffs and, and subsidies and you get into more you know, internal affairs of the country, the, the more that people are going to say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm losing my ability as a voter to be able to, to decide these matters. So I understand there's a point at which you can push that and people are going to say, I'm not comfortable with this. And that's a useful debate. Um, but I, I, I just don't see it in quite such stark terms as one day you're sovereign, the next day you've lost it all, and it's all because somebody in the back room made a bad decision. No, no, it's, uh, I think it's been the history of Canadian business and economics is, is, is a, a, a sellout, but it's not straightforward like that. It's, it's not black and white. Someone has to make the investment, and if Canadian business isn't willing to make it, then, then the Americans make it. And we get, and we get uh, employment, we get jobs, we get standard of living, we get uh, supposedly maybe a bit of research. Well, and th th there's different types of sovereignty as well. So when you open your economy to free trade with the Americans, with the world, one of the ways in which you become increasingly sovereign is through consumer sovereignty. So instead of being captive to local monopolies, um, you have the com companies like around the, the world. You mean like you the telephone companies? Well, well, not just the telephone companies, but but that this is one of the things we've also. So you're concerned with foreign investment, and that's fine. But the other thing we've grappled with as a country, and that there's a relationship between the two, is dominance by local local monopolists, local oligopolists. If the tariffs protect them. Yes. If you look at Canada now, we pay among the highest domestic airfares in the world. We pay among the highest wireless telephone fees in the world. We pay among the highest financial services fees in the world. Well, what's common to those three three industries is they're all protected local oligopolies. Yeah. Uh, 
so you kind of, to some extent, you choose your poison. Would you rather be exploited by domestic capitalists? Yeah, that's or right. Would you rather have yeah. uh, foreign capitalists <laughs> and domestic guys yeah. uh, work yeah. for a living? That's exactly uh, the error that uh, Walter Gordon made, I think. He, he believed that patriotism meant something to Canadian businesses. He believed that Profit didn't come first for them, I think. Maybe Patriotism not. was the last refuge of a, of a capitalist. You know, the, 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 and, and, and they were quite overt about this. Some of the founders of the Committee for an Independent Canada, I think one of the founders was the chairman of Brasscan. So Canadian businesses have always understood that they can play on these nationalist themes and, and tug at people's nationalist heartstrings to get a bunch of policies put in place that basically increase their profits. So well, the reason I'm not an economic nationalist is yes. it's easily exploited. Yes, well, and that's exactly what American companies did. They actually exploited Canadian patriotism to make... Uh, you did, many people didn't even know that Esso was not Canadian. I don't really think. Well, you, you, remember the, you remember the I Am Canadian commercial, the Molson's? Yes, yes, it's made in the States. It's a very effective way of preying on people's insecurities. Uh, that's why I'm a little skeptical of it. Okay. Well, your father went to the mat for that, I think. He, he actually went out and put his yeah. job on well, the he, line. He, he, he put his job on the line it. for that. He was very concerned about it. And maybe if I'd been alive at the time and, and facing the same circumstances they were then, I might have, you know, who knows? I might have agreed with them, I might have disagreed with them. I don't know. But I know for a fact it would have been uh, something he felt very deeply about and had. I think it's pretty great. Just as, as a Canadian, I think that's pretty damn great. Yeah, well, fair enough. And, 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 and certainly that, that's, genuine, that's genuine Canadian patriotism involved there. So uh, we're winding down here. What he did actually uh, when he resigned, the whole coin affair. For his role in the controversy, the Canadian press named him Canadian Newsmaker of the Year in 1961. <laughs> Sometimes a, a dubious surprise. I'm sure he'd rather not have been the Newsmaker of the Year. Yes, yes, okay. <laughs> well, uh, let's just, in, as we wind down, let's go back to the obituary that you wrote. You said that he was uh, a model of how to age gracefully and was in excellent shape mentally and physically all through his first century. In his 60s, he took up bridge, becoming a fixture of the Manitoba bridge scene and attaining the status of silver master. And he continued to walk an hour every day. I, I, I'm most impressed with that. And he didn't even have buds, earbuds and a, and a, and a podcast yeah. to listen to. Well, he, he, that's right. He took care of himself. He, he, he um, you know, it's funny because he was of a generation where uh, this, this was before really, you know, fitness clubs and yeah. kinesiologists and people giving him all this advice and everything. Uh, but he understood the, the importance of keeping, uh, keeping fit. But, he, you know, he was of a generation where you didn't play sports once you hit adulthood or middle age, you know, the right. way people do today. So I often wonder, you know, he, he, he lived a good ripe old age, but, you know, how, how much longer might he have lived if he if had the benefit of modern science, modern uh, fitness things and everything else. He was very interested in food. He well, all those he sometimes had eccentric food habits, but he also, in later life, read up a lot on, you know, sugar and salt <laughs> and which was good for you and bad for you. And all. He, he was very well informed in all that stuff. 
Well, yeah, like Brussels sprouts and uh, blueberries, <laughs> you know, you can't go wrong with those. <laughs> That's true. Yes, and so you talk about the, the Brussels sprouts, the blueberries, the olive oil, and the chocolate Ravellos. Yeah, he, he was very fond. He had a sweet tooth. So a man of, man of complications. He was a serious man with a strong sense of duty, yet had a dry, sometimes impish sense of humor. Yeah, he, you know, he liked a good joke. He would oftentimes recite bits of doggerel. And I guess he'd learned uh, as a young man or, young, or a child, uh, sometimes oftentimes quite amusing. You know, he, would, he wasn't what you would call the life of the party, but, but he did enjoy a good, good laugh. I found him once in, when he was in his 80s, doubled over with laughter, uh, just sitting by himself because he, it had just occurred to him this is a bit of a slightly eccentric story. He had studied Greek as, as a child in school. I guess one did in those days. But it had only just occurred to him in his 80s why the letters Omega and Omicron, where they got their names. And of course, it's Big O and Little O. But it had never occurred to him until that moment. <laughs> <laughs> so why did he love Winnipeg so much? What's so good about Winnipeg? Aha. Bite your tongue. Winnipeg is a wonderful city. First of all, it has a lovely, graceful architecture and the, the, the residential buildings and also downtown. They, Winnipeg, the banks, yeah. Winnipeg in the early 20th century, when my grandfather went out there, was going to be the next big thing. There were all kinds of big fortunes being made in the grain trade and the railway trade, etc. And if you were a young man, young person in those days, you would, that, that was a place to go. And you can see it in some of the architecture. They threw up these great big skyscrapers, certainly big for their day. They're beautiful, uh, yeah, some of them. Yeah, it was going to be Chicago, right? And then two things happened. One is the building of the Panama Canal, yes. uh, which took away a lot of the cross-continental continental, uh, railway trade. And the other was the Depression. And so Winnipeg kind of hit a plateau and thankfully, you know, didn't, didn't recede from that. But it didn't become quite as large as people would have hoped. But what comes out of that is a, a city with certainly, first of all, some wealthy families that have a very strong sense of giving back to the community. People like the Richardsons, for example, yeah. that have done extraordinary uh, endowments in the city. A strong sense of sort of civic cohesion, uh, of working together. The, the business community is very good at kind of putting together large projects. The Panama, the Pan Am Games, for example. We, we had the Pan Am Games twice, I think, before Toronto had it once. And uh, as a lovely residential districts, the lovely trees that form a canopy over the, the, the streets. And I think just a sense of kind of modesty and not putting on airs. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a culture to Winnipeg that I think is just sort of fundamentally healthy. Uh, it's hard to put into words, but it, but it just seems to, uh, it just seems to, to have a, 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 a sense of proportion to it, I guess is what I would, the way I would put it. And it still does. Today. Yeah, absolutely. So it's 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 a sort of a funny mixture of am, ambition uh, and modesty. So a lot of people leave Winnipeg. Uh, young people they'll leave Winnipeg, uh, but nobody is too distraught about it. They'll just sort of say, "Okay, good luck," because they know someone else is coming in. Uh, and so the so the city uh, you know never it doesn't subside, doesn't hasn't grown as you know as fast as perhaps they originally intended. But it's it's grown into a city that's comfortable with itself. Uh, and that's pretty successful in a lot of ways. It's, 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 it's got real, there's real quality of life arguments for living in Winnipeg. So I think 
you know, obviously that's part of why he was fond of Winnipeg, but it was also his home. You know, it was, it was where he grew yeah. up. And, uh, Roots. Why you, you know, yeah, you should be proud of where you come from. One of his best friends was Jack Pickerskill, the liberal, should I call him a kingpin? <laughs> yes, probably a good term. So no wonder yes, Diefenbaker, no wonder Diefenbaker was suspicious. Well, yes, I mean, Diefenbaker was naturally suspicious, first of all. Um, I might have been suspicious uh, if I were him as well, because remember, the Liberals had governed Canada for 22 years mm -hmm. prior to this. And mm -hmm. Ottawa, you know, it's a pretty liberal town today, but you know, I think it was even more so then. Mm -hmm. So the Tories came in, as the Tories will do, uh, unfortunately, sort of exuding that suspicion yes. uh, rather more than they should. You know, you got to give people a, 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 a chance. You don't just sort of come in and assume they're all again you. And I think that was Diefenbaker's default mode was, was frankly, was paranoia. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he said some pretty dreadful things about dad being an unregenerate grit and all this nonsense. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but, but certainly he had a close personal friendship with, with Jack Pickerskill. They, you know, they'd lived together. They, you know, as young men, they, you know, Jack's, when Jack's wife died, dad took him in, you know, to, to help him sort of get, get back on his feet. Yeah. So they were very close friends, um, but that had nothing to do with politics. Hmm. Your dad gets mentioned in uh, one of the great tomes of uh, economic nationalists. Uh, it's not actually a tome; it's pretty pretty skinny little book. But Lament for a Nation, he gets mentioned in. Oh. Very po well, positively, yeah. he. I think he's. I think Grant calls him brilliant and uh, a firm Canadian. It's odd though, because Grant also idealized, idealized and idolized Diefenbaker in a very strange way. Well, he did and he didn't. He also he thought he was mixed up. He thought Diefenbaker was yeah. mixed up. But he admired his nationalism. Yeah, he he thought Diefenbaker was heroically mixed up. Yes, that he was he was sort of fighting against yeah. impossible odds because. Right. You know, the, the machinery of technique was, you know, steamrolling all on his path and Diefenbaker was still fighting sort of a, a lost cause kind of thing. I, 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 I yeah, it, it's, it's a book that uh, I think is very much, again, of its time. It's, it's hard to read it today in my feelings. I find it hard to read that book today and take it seriously. It, it's, it's, I, it's, a, it's just so I take it. Uh, I take it seriously. I'm so sorry. I don't mean to to uh, to, be, to cause offense, but uh, I'll just speak for myself, and I apologize. But well, I mean, it it it, does, it doesn't go to the root of my soul, but uh, I think it's a very valuable contribution to uh, understanding our country. Well, it, and certainly many people would 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 agree with you on that. I'm I'm not one of them, but I understand. <laughs> many okay. Your father lived at home with his wife till his final days, still following politics, still making his own breakfast, still able to get out and about, and with every hair he was born with. It's a source of some uh, um, resentment on my part. No, he was yeah. He had a full head of hair. He, he didn't even he didn't even didn't even go gray till oh, boy. Right. the eighties, I think. No, he was he was uh, he was uh, blessed with a very sturdy constitution. Final point: We didn't really talk that much about uh, 
Walter Gordon, who was the uh, finance minister. In 63, uh, his budget put forward proposals to buy back Canada from the United States, and it got basically kicked to the curb by his own party, and everyone pretty well laughed at him. But there's a whiff of hypocrisy about Walter Gordon because he made a lot of money selling Canadian companies to the Americans. Right. I mean, his company, Clarkson Gordon, was Ford of Canada's uh, accountant. Right. Well, I, you know, I've, I've got no personal beef with Walter Gordon, but it's, it's certainly the case, as we were discussing earlier, that a lot of self-professed nationalists um, profited from the game. A lot of, uh, you know, cultural nationalist fights, for example, when you sort of dig into them, are not about protecting Canadian culture from American culture. It's about the right to control the spigot of American culture coming in. Um, so that they can sell they, ads around it or whatever. Well, and the argument is, yes, we need to be able to control this, this, this to get the profits that we will then reinvest. Yes, in right. And look at all the great, in. look at all the great Canadian TV series that have been produced. That's right. So, so cultural nationalism, even more so than economic nationalism, in my observation, uh, is prone to, to being used uh, for, 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 for profit in ways that don't really have a whole lot to do with either culture or nationalism. Well, that's, um, I was just going to say that I don't... I don't perceive any whiff of hypocrisy about your father at all. In fact, I mean, this may be wrong, but I think he may have paid a price for his economic nationalism and going out and promoting it the way he did, stepping out of line. And well, maybe a, he was say, frozen out. Was he frozen out by the elite for doing that, do you think, or not? I think that's too simple. He had antagonized different sections of opinion. So we've discussed that there were certainly economists who didn't like him for various reasons. I don't imagine the government was terribly keen on him attracting attention in that way. So he made himself a bit of a, a target. But I think the fundamental driver of the coin affair is the governor of the day was exploiting the ambiguity surrounding the role of the governor for partisan purposes, that they needed yeah. a scapegoat at times and they needed and then other times they needed to be seen to be cracking the whip. So it, 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 I, think, I think that was the problem, was you had um, a fairly unscrupulous uh, set of political operatives around Diefenbaker, Diefenbaker in particular, uh, and you had this opportunity in the form of the, the, this, this job not having been clarified and the, the sort of conventions surrounding it not have being, being well known enough. I mean, a, a government that tried to do that today would, would get itself in a terrible state. You know, it's so entrenched now that the way that we do things is we have this five-year agreement with the Bank of Canada governor, that, and, and, and thank goodness. I think yes. the country benefits enormously from that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that not just Canada, but countries around the world in the last 20, 30, 40 years has been this movement towards trying to regularize and, and, and make the, the central banks independent from political manipulation because... A government of the day with large deficits has a kind of a conflict of interest, and it's all too, history has shown, all too prone to trying to inflate its way out of its debts. And the people who pay the price of inflation are typically um, people of, of modest means, people yes. who don't have ways of getting around it, people yeah. who can't buy inflation hedges and 
yep. these kinds of things. So I think we've learned to our cost as, as Western societies, as societies around the world, that that's, that's not, not something um, that we want to tolerate. And that's why there's been this movement to, to make central banks um, more independent over the last few decades. Well, I think my angle is way more uh, exciting and interesting. <laughs> uh, and I also think that when Netflix tries to suck up to the government, it should propose doing a, some kind of mini-series on the coin affair. I think that would be a fabulous mini-series. That's, well, that's a good question. Maybe somebody will. Okay. Well, uh, I want to thank you for talking about your, uh, your father. He was an extraordinary Canadian. And uh, thank you for the, uh, for the extraordinary work that you do. I think you're an extraordinary Canadian. Oh, that's awfully kind. Well, thank you. I enjoyed this conversation very much. I've been speaking with Andrew Coyne, who is a... Maybe you could do your own extra. A columnist with the Globe and Mail. <laughs> okay, very good. Thanks again. Thanks very much.